market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor at The Paper. And we have a returning guest. He's back. It's finally happened. I'm no longer on my own. Alistair, welcome back. Thanks very much. I think I qualify as more than a guest. (laughs) I guess it sounds like I'm just making appearances every so often. I mean, for the last four weeks, where have you been? <laughs> good point, good point. Um, so, Alistair, uh, obviously, long-standing listeners will know, political editor at the paper. Um, congratulations on the new arrival. Thanks very much. Thanks I hope much. you're doing all right, and mum and baby are doing all right, and all of the usual. We are, yeah, they are. Uh, just <laughs> obviously come back from paternity leave, just to explain... Uh, but yeah, no, it was amazing. So forgive any tired, tiredness uh, in the responses or yeah, stumblings. Any, any stupid thing I say, that's, that's why. <laughs> um, but it, the second biggest story in Scottish politics this week is obviously the Supreme Court um, announcement on Wednesday that the Scottish Government cannot pass a referendum bill lawfully in Holyrood. Take us through a bit of that. You were back just in time for it. Yeah, so we probably don't really need a recap as such, but I'll give one anyway, very brief. Yeah. Obviously, the Nicola Sturgeon had asked the Lord Advocate, Scotland's top law officer, to go to the Supreme Court to basically get a ruling on whether Holyrood, whether the Scottish Parliament has the power to legislate for an independence referendum, um, obviously without the agreement of the UK government. Nicola Sturgeon wants, or, or wanted anyway, uh, a second referendum to take place in October next year. UK government... Not agreeing to that, they've obviously said no to multiple requests for a Section 30 order for a rerun of the 2014 referendum mm-hmm. now. Um, so, yeah, they've taken this to the Supreme Court. The Lord Advocate had been asked to do it, but she obviously did it of her own volition as well. Yeah. Um, and there was a two-day hearing back in October, I think. Yep. Um, and essentially we had the, the ruling, the judgment issued um, a few days ago now, or a few days ago when this podcast will come out, uh, and the Supreme Court, a panel of five judges basically made the ruling that the Scottish Parliament does not have the power to uh, kind of legislate for a second independence referendum or an independence referendum in general. Neither of us are legal experts, so we'll, we'll avoid kind of delving into the reasons for, for why. But it was interesting, the, the degree of clarity was a bit of a surprise in the sense that a lot of the talk beforehand was about whether or not the court would almost fudge it to an extent and rule that it was either premature or it was hypothetical, the reference itself and that they'd give maybe an opinion on the substantive issue or maybe just avoid it altogether. Um, but we did get a degree of clarity that I don't think we were really expecting. Yeah, I think it was a surprise. I think it definitely surprised um, the UK government, probably yeah. the Scottish government as well. Uh, I mean, the Supreme Court was making basically two decisions. The first one, as you say, is whether or not they should make a ruling in the first place, mm-hmm. given the legislation, the draft uh, independence referendum bill legislation hasn't been passed or scrutinised by MSPs. Um, so the argument was it was premature, the Supreme Court shouldn't make a ruling on it. They decided they would, they decided it was right to, that it was in the public interest to make a ruling. Um, and then the second aspect that they were ruling on was the key aspect, you know, whether or not it was within Holyrood's powers. And it was a very definitive ruling that it wasn't. 
Um, so I think that did take people by surprise. There was an expectation that it would be, if not a fudge, that there would be some kind of complicated aspect to it, that it wouldn't yeah. quite be as clear-cut as it was in the end. Particularly given as well that back in October at the actual hearings, I think three-quarters of the, the two days were taken up by the Advocate General's arguments around you know, whether or not this should be even heard by the Supreme Court. It was a central plank of their their two-day argument, wasn't it? Yeah, they wanted it to, just to be chucked out. Yeah. They didn't want basis. an answer. No, they didn't, um, for understandable reasons. <laughs> uh, so it did take up a, an extraordinary amount of time and a very complicated legal arguments mm-hmm. around that. Uh, but yeah, to have this kind of definitive ruling, and I think no matter what you think about the independence debate, no matter what you think about the Scottish Government going to the court in the first place or the Lord Advocate going to the court, I think it is useful from the perspective of the independence debate in Scotland, which, let's face it, isn't going away, to have a definitive ruling in this. It was an issue that was outstanding. It's been a kind of long-standing issue in legal circles, a lot of academic debate about it. Mm -hmm. And it has been something that's been kind of, you know, looming in the corner. And it's nice to actually have a ruling on it. And I think it does allow the debate to move on, even if, you know, we'll probably come on to this. We find ourselves talking about a lot of the same things we've been talking about for years now. But it has allowed... You know that aspect of it to move on at least to an extent. I mean, the the big thing that's scuppered the SNP's progress on this for a while has been discussions around process, and you know internally something like this has been mooted by Nicola Sturgeon's internal opponents. There's been a lot of you know why don't you do X? Why don't you do Z? Why don't you use Holyrood in this way as was you know intended for for this referendum spill? We they now have a degree of certainty on you know we can't we can't do anything here that will result in a referendum. So kind of the next steps of the Crick Key thing, and we, we heard bits and bobs of that, didn't we, yesterday from Nicola Sturgeon. She's expanded on it slightly today, but we, her, her, she steered into the skid, is probably the best way of putting it, in terms of the de facto referendum, uh, which she, she mentioned almost offhandedly back in June, which is now a key plank of the SNP's um, plan for the next general election. Yeah, so this is... The plan to use the next general election as, yeah, quote-unquote de facto referendum. So I guess the, the principle of it is to have um, votes for pro-independence parties being more, 50% or more mm. of the vote. Uh, and that, that using that as a kind of mandate to, uh, I mean, if you listen to Nicola Sturgeon, to open negotiations yeah. with the UK government over independence. I think that's... It's effectively a plebiscite, really. Yeah, I think there's a number, I mean, let's face it, there are endless problems with this. I mean, it's just such a messy route to go down. I think Nicola Sturgeon accepts that. You know, if you listen to her in her press conference um, the other day, she was quite clear that a referendum, a rerun of 2014 is what they want. That's Mm. her preferred option by far. But, you know, she says that's been blocked out. They can't go down that route. So they're having to try and push forward in this other way. But it's just extremely messy. I mean, the first aspect of many is that the opposition parties, the unionist parties, Scottish Labour and Scottish Conservatives will fight the election on their own issues. They will not fight it as a de facto referendum. You know, particularly Scottish Labour, um, potentially looking at a Labour government coming in down south and all the momentum that that has, certainly on a UK level, if not on a Scottish level. But they all want to be focusing on the cost of living crisis and the economic crisis, which won't have gone away by the time a general election comes around. Scottish Conservatives will have their own issues. They are not going to be playing ball with this idea of a de facto referendum. And I think that calls into question the, the legitimacy of any result on the back of that if the other side are just not engaging with that. And I think the other obvious aspect is I can't see why, and maybe you feel differently, although having spoken to you, I don't think you do, <laughs> why the UK government would come to the negotiating table on the back of this when they have 
repeatedly refused Section 30 requests, mm -hmm. you know, on the back of argu arguably multiple election mandates by the SNP. You know, why would they treat this election any differently? I, I just can't see why they would. I, I, th I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's funny, it came up, um, journalists have uh, post-FMQ's briefing with the First Minister's official spokesperson every Thursday, and it, I, I, I brought this up because I agree with you that I, I struggle to see how it makes any difference. In fact, you know, say Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP win 55% of the vote at um, the next general election in Scotland. A, highly unlikely. They've only ever got close once in 2015, and even then it was, for, in terms of just SNP votes, it was 49.97%. Um, but I, I asked this to, 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 the, to the official spokesperson today, which is, you know, at the minute, Holyrood and the First Minister, under the rules of Holyrood, has a mandate for a referendum. And he accepted that. He said, that's what we fought, you know, the, the last uh, Holyrood election on last year. So that's what, we're, what we've been asking for. Um, but my question was, well, how does a Westminster election change the mandate that Holyrood MSPs and, by extension, the First Minister has? There is no change to that mandate. It's merely, you know, apparently something that MPs can go and shout about at Westminster. But the suggestion that something suddenly changes which allows the SNP from Edinburgh to go to the negotiating table with um, the UK government just seems balmy. It, there's a complete disconnect between the result and the actual result, if you like, of, of that. I, the, the rhetoric around this of it guaranteeing independence at the end of it or the suggestion that it even might lead to it feels completely nonsensical. And there is nothing stopping the UK government turning around and going, nah, I'm not going to deal with you. Yeah, it's very much the last throw of the dice Completely. on Nicola Sturgeon's part. Um, and don't get me wrong, I can't see what else she would do at this stage. You know, it's a difficult situation. A lot of those kind of routes forward have been closed off. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess from her point of view, you've got maybe certain people in the independence movement that are restless, that want action to be taken... Um, and you have to come up with something that tries to push the debate on. But I, I just think if you look at it from a, an objective point of view, I totally agree. I just can't see how it, I can't see how it's going to have the effect that they seem to be suggesting it will have. I think the only way it would work is if you had a really definitive result mm. and it was a really huge show, like show of support for pro-independence parties. But given we know how the electoral system works, um, and like you say, even in 2015, I think it was, when they had mm -hmm. their big surge, mm -hmm. they got, I think it was, I mean, this is a very rough figure, but they were 0.5% or something off having 50% yeah. of the vote in Scotland. Yeah. And that was an extraordinary result, which I don't think many people would predict that they would repeat. No. Um, and even if they did, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. So it's a huge risk for Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and I think the other aspect of it that we can maybe talk about is that a lot of people see, see it as her exit strategy, essentially, yeah. that she is... Doing this is her, as I said before, last throw of the dice and, you know, if it's not successful, she'll stand down before the next Holyrood election. And that would still, you know, I suppose we don't know for certain when the next Westminster election will be, but in theory, um, it would be almost the perfect time for her to stand down because there'll still be quite a bit of time before that Holyrood election for a new SNP leader to bed in. Um, so, I mean, predictions in politics are always a bit of a fool's game, but it would seem like this is her maybe her last stand. Well, it's certainly, if you look at it from a from a perspective of what she does if she loses, um, if that 50% mark isn't hit, she staked her entire reputation and her career on winning a referendum. She, If she goes into the next 
general election on the grounds that it is a you know, de facto referendum, then for her and her party, and therefore her future, it is a referendum, regardless of what other parties think. So if she loses that, she has to resign. And the suggestion that she, she would cling on afterwards, I think, fails to take into account kind of what you've been saying about the fact that this is a, a last gasp effort to, you know, drag Scotland into independence while she's still at the height of her her powers, but also fails to take into account that I think she's ready to go. <laughs> and I think I think it, it's it's demonstrative by the fact that she's being pushed into this de facto referendum, which is obviously not what she really, truly wants, um, as a way of moving it forward. The only reason you would do that is if you think your time is short. Yeah, I think I think she is ready to uh, stand down. Not necessarily right now. She's been that, around I think for she's, a hell of a long time. She's ready to stand down uh, in the near future, I think. Mm. And this is a, a route out. She has been around for a long time. I think she's very aware, as all politicians are, that politicians have shelf lives. They Absolutely. can't hang around forever. Uh, no matter how popular you are in your party. Uh, and it's best to go out on your own terms. And this would, as for a fashion, be going out on her own terms. Mm-hmm. And I think it was interesting, actually, in her press conference in Edinburgh after the Supreme Court decision, that when she was asked about resigning on the back of any kind of failure of this strategy, she kind of danced around the issue a little bit. And she said things like, you know, I intend to be here for a long time to come, you know, I've, I'm going nowhere, but didn't, you know, actually rule out stepping down. I mean, that would be a couple of years in the future, presumably. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's safe to say that that would be the, and even if even if, yeah, even if they won on their own terms, it's hard to know what would happen next and what her position would be because, you know, if the UK government didn't come to the negotiating table. That's still a failure of sorts. So yeah, what, what do we think? Let, let's push this off the SNP briefly and and talk about the response that maybe should or shouldn't come from the opposition in in, in Westminster in particular. Labour on the assumption that they will win the next election. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm personally of the view that um, Labour risk alienating voters up here by, you know, not not going for for something like this and for not, um, you know, not setting out at the very least the route to independence. I think there's a very there's a big risk to them that they don't come across as democratic. I think the the the, the rhetoric we might come on to bits of this later. But the rhetoric around this of democracy denial—it's very Brexity. It's very kind of heart over mind. But it is a powerful tool, and Labour are probably weak to it if they do not set out some sort of democratic route to independence. Do you think it's time that the SNP's opponents in Westminster do something like that, if only to secure the idea of voluntary nation to undercut the SNP? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's long overdue that unionism in Scotland has a conversation with itself about what the union means, what it means to be part of the UK. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I suppose that particularly with Gordon Brown having this uh, kind of look at the, the makeup of the UK and the constitution... Which will eventually arrive, we're told. Yeah, that he's doing this report <laughs> that could, in theory, be published reasonably soon. Um, I think as part of that, they definitely need to address this question. Um, and it's definitely true that... You know, obviously people have different views on independence, but if people are, if a political party is winning elections time after time, and everyone knows what the SNP stand for, it's not a secret that they're a pro-independence party, mm-hmm. and yet people in Scotland are voting for them, and they're winning these elections, then I, I do think it becomes, I think the argument that there's a democratic issue at stake has weight. Uh, and I think, I actually think some of the opposition know that. Mm, I agree. Um, what, do, what, what, just to cut in there, do you think that there is a, that, that the, the, 
the, obviously the discussion in the last few days, you know, the nerdy side of this has been, you know, it's no longer a partnership. Of, uh, it's not the union is no longer a partnership, uh, a voluntary partnership, a partnership of equals, you know, based on a, on consent. Now there is one part of the UK that can leave under the current devolution settlement, which is Northern Ireland. Um, obviously, England, if they wanted to announce yeah, independence England, yeah. tomorrow, could do so. But from a from a legitimate point of view of the devolved nations, Northern Ireland is the only one that can. And the way that that's set out in the Good Friday Agreement is very vague and very yeah. amorphous. I don't think there's anything stopping the UK government, whatever colour it is, saying, do you know what, Scotland, you will have the same rule as Northern Ireland, Wales, even you will, and we'll come back to it when, you know, as we've always said, opinions are settled and clear. Well, it's one of the problems of the kind of unwritten constitution and the way the UK operates is that these things aren't codified, they're not written down. So, yeah, other than obviously the Good Friday Agreement... But yeah, I mean, there's no... I suppose, I mean, the Nicholas Sturgeon's language around exploding the myth of a union of equals in a, you know, the voluntary union is obviously politicised language and emotive language, but I think she does have a point in the sense that if we accept that Scotland can leave the UK as part of a democratic process, if it so chooses, which everyone seems to, even the UK government accept that as a principle, then you have to lay out how that can happen. You can't just repeatedly say no without ever setting out at what point in the future you would start to say yes. Mm-hmm. And we get all this vague talk of a generation. You've got people like Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack who's put kind of rough figures on it before, but they seem to just be pulled out of thin air. Yeah. There's no real fault behind them. And no offence to Alistair Jack. And there's nothing stopping them rolling back on it, you know, if it becomes no, a 60%. No, it's not policy. If, if polling says 60% in next year, you know, Alistair Jack could turn around and actually I meant 75%. Yeah. You know, and the, and the, the, the hurdle gets ever higher. So you do, you do have to address that question. I think it's a totally legitimate question, particularly when you've got a country like Scotland that is so divided in this issue and where it's dominating political debate, it's not going to go away anytime soon. I know there's lots of people, um, maybe when it comes to this debate, particularly on the unionist side, that would just point to the 2014 referendum and say, look, we had a vote then, the result happened, it was decisive, let's just move on. And I can understand that argument from where they're coming from, but elections are elections and we vote parties in to enact their manifestos and I don't know how you get around that. If, if you suddenly say that, well, actually, that part of your manifesto, we weren't talking about that, then where do you go from there? I mean, the decision-making process in our political culture is elections. So it's a tricky one. Let, let's, let's think a bit further forward. Let's go to... We've had the de facto referendum. Say the SNP have won... 50.1% of the vote, you know, maybe with a bit of help with the Greens, they've got over over that that target. And Labour in power, but they have a significant majority, basically what the polls are saying to us now. What happens then? What 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 do we see as the future for both the both the you know SNP movement and the independence movement and for Labour Party um, going forward? Well, I mean, from my point of view, I mean, it would obviously be an extraordinary achievement for the SNP and for the pro-independent side, but um, I still don't see why, you know, presumably Keir Starmer would agree to it. You wouldn't want, no one wants to be the last Prime Minister of the UK, mm. or the UK as it stands right now. So I don't know what's in his interest to, particularly if the result is that close, because you're still looking at essentially a 50-50 scenario where the country is divided. That's exactly what it is right now. Um, and he's not going to lose votes, presumably, by ignoring it. I mean, you do get into a, different situ- a difficult situation in terms of I don't know where this debate goes if that happens, where the independence movement go from that, and I think there'd be a lot of frustration and you're potentially looking at quite 
nasty a troubling politics, situation. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't know what his incentive would be. Yeah, it just goes back to the same thing. What, what is the UK government's incentive to come to the table? Do you think the independence movement is at risk if they lose? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where they go from here if they lose. Yeah. Especially because they, they, Nicola Sturgeon has set it up as a de facto referendum. Mm-hmm. So she has set it up as a decision-making process and a way to kind of test public opinion. So if they lose, I think it sets them back significantly. Because, I mean, it arguably could kill it stone dead as a movement. Yeah, I mean, it will never go away. The Scot- Scottish question will always form part of Scottish politics. Mm. But, yeah, it will set it back as a mainstream uh, movement that's on the edge of, you know, we, we always feel like it's on the edge of something. We constantly live in a world of anti-climax, as Scottish <laughs> politics do. Yeah. So, yeah. waiting for something amazing to, and, you know, incredibly... Uh, forceful events to happen and then we end up talking about what we've already spoken about. Yeah, it's always on the horizon and it's obviously a completely different scenario and I'm not making comparisons because it's not actually comparable but you look at Quebec and they had obviously two referendums and Mm -hmm. the issue did get killed. Yeah. Uh, And obviously this is not the same because it's a de facto referendum. Uh, But yeah, you have another test of public opinion and it doesn't go their way. I think it's difficult to come back from that. I'd recommend listening to uh, episode six of How to Be an Independent Scotland Sorry, it had to be an independent country's country, Scotland's choices, which deals with the Quebec similarities. Um, one interesting thing, just to mention briefly on that, is the idea that um, Quebec politics moved away from independence due to a shift to more nationalist, like ethnic nationalist um, feeling and anti-immigration style feeling. Very much, you know, the the, the home of UKIP in the U- United Kingdom. Um, let's move on. There was a. A chat today in the FM, post-FMQ's briefing um, with the First Minister's official spokesperson where he accused the opposition parties in Holyrood of trying to pretend they won an election they lost. That's a direct quote. Um, and when asked you know, to clarify whether he was saying they were denying the result of 2021, he said, well, they appear to be... Um, you and I have different opinions on how serious or how big of a step this is, but what, what are your thoughts? What, what were your reaction to that? Well, I don't want to down... I mean, I, I don't think it's the right language to use. I don't think it's helpful in political debate to use that kind of language. And I do obviously let you speak for yourself. But I, do, <laughs> I do share the concerns, you know, in terms of escalating political debate and where mm. that goes. Um, but I don't think it's that different from what uh, the SNP have said previously about this kind of thing. I mean, they do say that they have a mandate that's being ignored. And that's essentially, I know he's using different language, but it's essentially the kind of route he's going down there. I think this kind of throwing the insult, trumping at each other. Uh, obviously, Alex Cole Hamilton, the Scottish Liberal Democrat leader, brought it up in FMQs. And, and on Twitter. Yeah. And on Twitter. And uh, the First Minister's official spokesman is, is throwing it back at the unionist side. I think it's a bit tiresome, to be honest. It's just a bit, yeah, I don't really have much time for it. So I'm not saying that I approve of his language. I don't think it's good. <laughs> I'm just not as concerned as I think you are. No, I, th- I, I, I have a... Oh, you, you weren't in the briefing, so... Yeah, to, to be to, fair, to yeah, be I fair. wasn't. So, but it, it, was a, it was an interesting, not to go into too much detail, given the nature of it. It's all on the record, um, obviously, so we can report on it. But um, it was an interesting scenario because it was... It kind of started off with him being irritated by what he called ludicrous criticisms of the rhetoric from, from, from the First Minister yesterday, all about democracy denial. And it came off the back as well of um, Stuart Macdonald MP, who's an SNP MP, um, defence spokesman, very highly thought of within the party and 
um, viewed by many as modernising the party on you know certain issues like like nuclear weapons and all of this sort of stuff. But um, Stuart Macdonald, you know, went out of his way on Twitter to criticise. He called on the, the SNP to shun language like prisoners and shackled to the to the union, which yeah. is exactly the language that. Nicola Sturgeon used yeah. yesterday. She, you know, she said Scotland was now a prisoner of Westminster, um, and then today we have a further escalation of it. From that, you know, I, th- I think there's. I, I think the critical thing for for me to say is that I think it's there's a fair and a valid argument to be made about, as you say, the, the disrespecting the mandate of Holyrood. You can say that that is a denial of democracy, a denial of the result, if you like, in terms of the mandate that they have. But I think you have to make that very clear. Um, Suggesting, as the First Minister's official spokesperson did, that the opposition parties are pretending they won an election that they lost, which is, you know, Trump-esque language, going, you know, stolen, rigged, whatever. That was, that was yeah, his, yeah. His, his way of going about it. Um, I, I think is a step up, and I think it demonstrates that there is a... There has been an escalation of language in yesterday and today. You, you could spot it on Twitter, you could spot it, in the First Minister, that they have turned up what we've heard before in terms of, you know, do- democracy denial or standing in the way, blocking Scotland's interests, etc. All of that stuff we've heard as journalists, as the public, on repeat for decades now, probably 20 years. But they've turned it up to 11 and they've gone that little bit extra bit further and it, that, that escalation of rhetoric feels uncontrolled from my point of view. And there is a risk... And I don't think Scottish nationalism is anywhere close to it um, in terms of you know, violent uprising. I don't think there's an imminent you know, storming of the capital or storming of Westminster-esque thing. But there is a risk that this escalation of rhetoric continues kind of uncontrolled by those leading the movement to a position where there is a danger to people. Um, and I think the First Minister will, might well reflect at the end of this week and suggest that the rhetoric that has been employed in the last couple of days has been a bit OTT. Um, I don't think that it's an imminent risk to anyone. I just just think it's a big step to turn around to your opponents and tell them that they are denying the veracity or the credibility of the the 2021 Hollywood election in a country where that sort of language just does not exist. We are not America. We don't have, you know, politicians standing up and saying that elections were rigged or stolen or you know were part of a big lie um, we are better than that and our politicians particularly our elected representatives who lead governments should be better than that there you go that's stirring there you go. <laughs> i think one of the things it does do is give an insight into just how uh, how much of a trek this general election could be absolutely fact, a referendum yeah. if this kind of language is happening so early on you know we're not even anywhere close to this general election um, so it gives an insight into what could be ahead it could be a very um, rhetorically charged <laughs> few weeks couldn't it in terms of the yeah, actual campaign I mean you know it'll be a rhetorically charged couple of years but it, it, it reminds me of Brexit in the way that kind of democracy denial take back control slogan led politics rather than policy led politics yeah yeah well arguably all this kind of politics stems back to the these kind of referendums anyway, obviously the independence mm-hmm. referendum before that. Um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, I thought it was interesting actually in FMQs today, Thursday when we were recording, was that 
the Scottish Conservatives and the Scottish Labour both went in on the NHS and yeah. health issues yeah. instead of focusing on the constitutional debate. Obviously, deliberate choice on their part, but it gives an insight into how they would try and run a, a general election campaign focusing on those kind of issues. And as I say, presumably, the economic crisis will still be going and quite strong then. So. And Nicola Sturgeon didn't turn it into the constitution, actually, to, be, to, 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 to the credit of Holyrood. Um, it wasn't a immediate, well, independence is the only answer today, yeah. which is often what FMQs can often dev- to kind of end up being. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a sign of how serious these issues are. Mm. Uh, and also, probably, perhaps, Scottish Government annoyance at that story. Yes. Uh, obviously, for listeners, this is the story first reported in the BBC about the conversations uh, among NHS chiefs about a two-tier system in which the wealthy would pay for some treatment in the NHS. Uh, and the Scottish Government very keen to distance themselves from any idea that that would be happening in Scotland. I think, just to briefly touch on that story and FMQs today, it's it's stretching credibility, isn't it, to suggest that the government have any plans to go down that route seriously in terms of turning around and telling, you know, saying that something as basic as an appendicitis Mm -hmm. operation would be, you know, means-tested. That's not part of government policy. It's, It's stretching credibility, but I think the thing about that story is that Obviously, people at a very high level in the NHS are feeling the need to have these conversations because the NHS is so stretched. And if you speak to anyone who works in the NHS, you speak to union leaders, you can see how dire the situation is for those frontline staff. Underlines the structural problems, doesn't it? Yeah, NHS bosses are feeling the need to try and, well, to open up these kind of drastic conversations. And I think that's something that, even if the Scottish Government, you know, is insisting that they are not going to go down that route, which I'm not questioning, uh, that in itself is extremely worrying. And I think that's why some of the political reaction to that story was very frustrating mm-hmm. because that is the worrying thing about it, that these conversations were being opened up. You know, whether or not a Scottish government policy is deeply concerning, I think. Absolutely. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Alistair, for returning to your post um, after a brief um, disappearance um, for good and happy reasons. Um, and thank you very much at home for listening. We'll be back next week, uh, likely on similar lines who knows what will come up in Scottish politics in the interim but thank you very much at home for listening thank you very much Alistair bye bye market rate £3,000 a day were you signing Lionel Messi (laughs) this is first minister's questions just once just once it would be nice to get a first minister's answer any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.